Uh, hey, like I said, we are uh, starting this new series in the book of Galatians, and everything that we do is new, because we're new. Uh, we're three months old as a church, and so everything is kind of like a new thing for us. But I'm excited for today because, and for this series because um, we haven't taken the time just to go through a book in the Bible in a while, and so uh, as, as South Hills as a whole. And so the book of Galatians is an incredible one. It's one of the first books that uh, Paul wrote, one of the first letters that Paul wrote. And, um, and so there's, there's a piece with this series that I'm excited for all of us. And, um, and when you do a study, uh, when you do a series on a topic or an idea, there's a lot of good that can happen from that. We just series finished a series called the Every Person's Guide to Imperfection, uh, and it was great. And we talked about what it looks like to embrace our imperfections and allow God to to fill those cracks and spaces that we can't be perfect on our own. But when you do a series that's going through a book, there's there's new life that can come from it. And the scriptures, we believe, the scriptures are you know the Bible says that it's living and active, and that there's there's truth and power to God's word. And so one of the things, when we get to spend a few weeks looking at a book specifically, we believe that those scriptures, those verses can come alive in new ways. And you may agree with things that I say up here. You may disagree with things. You may laugh at some of the things. You may not laugh at some of the things. Um, But the reality is that the things that I say um, can be true or untrue. They can be kind of messed up. They can be accurate. They can make a point. They can not make a point. But what we believe about the Bible and why the Bible is so critical to us is that it is true. It is God's truth. And it speaks to our hearts in really powerful and and unique ways. And so what we've done for this series is we actually created... a uh, devotion, a reading guide, uh, and I think that we have a slide with some information on it. So if you guys, you can go to this on your phones, you can go to it on your computers at home. Is there a slide there? Perfect. It's unchainedseries.com. And uh, and so what we're going to be doing is we're actually going to be reading through, and this is going to sound daunting when I say it at first, but we're going to read the book of Galatians together every week for the next six weeks. It's only six chapters, so it's a chapter a day, kind of Monday through Saturday or whatever, however you want to break it down. And so what we're asking you guys to all do that with us. We're asking all of our churches to do this together because we really believe that, that more than anything cool that happens on a Sunday morning, that the Bible, that God's word will change our hearts, it'll change our lives, it'll change the way that we interact with each other, it'll change our relationships, our marriage, the way that we show up at work. And so you guys can write down that website. I encourage you, I invite you guys to do that with us, uh, and I'm excited to hear about how that goes um, over the next few weeks. So unchainedseries.com, I think that was it. So uh, we're in this series, and I kind of want to start off uh, this morning just with a, a, a story and it's a little bit of a made-up story, but you guys will kind of, you'll catch up with me. So uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, there was a woman. And this woman lived uh, maybe in a cave, in a hut. I don't know what it looked like exactly. But right outside, there was a tree. And this tree had all kinds of fruit that grew on it. And it was really nice because, you know, was, you didn't have to walk too far. And this, this fruit sustained her, sustained her family. It gave them nutrition and all the things that she needed, that her family needed to survive. And it was just it was just beautiful tree. And over time, she realized that this tree uh, that, prov- that produced this fruit, uh, it, it depended on some other forces. Uh, there was times when the, the tree produced a ton of fruit. There was times when the tree didn't pr- produce anything. Uh, There was times when the tree produced fruit that wasn't really very good. It it didn't taste right. It it maybe was rotten. Uh, Maybe it wasn't fully ripe. And then there was other times when it was just perfect. 
This, this tree, this plant was dependent on things much beyond just itself. And she started to realize this. She, she realized that this, this plant is dependent on these things outside of itself, these forces that were beyond the plant's control and they were beyond this woman's control. And this woman had a husband. And this husband, every so often, he would go off with all of the other husbands and they would go out hunting. Um, and they would sometimes be gone for a few hours and then come back and they would have found something. They would have, had, they would have made a kill and it was a short trip. And then there's other times when they would leave and they would be gone for days, maybe even weeks, and they would come back and sometimes they would have a kill and sometimes they wouldn't have a kill. And, and they would tell these stories maybe around the fire about how the animals, sometimes the, the animals almost felt like they wanted to be caught. And other times it felt like, you know, somebody was telling these animals exactly where to hide so the hunters couldn't find them. And they felt like there was this, there was some forces that were going on behind the scenes of these hunts that they struggled with, that they wanted to, to understand how, why is it sometimes we can find something in a couple hours and other times we don't find anything at all. And so they were becoming more and more aware that there was these forces outside of the animals, there was these forces outside of the tree that was affecting their life. It was affecting what they needed to survive, what they needed to be happy, what they needed to be healthy. And they started to realize that the dependence that the plants had on these forces, the, the dependence that the, the hunters had and the animals had on these forces, they were, they were pretty similar. There was a lot of connections there. The rain, you know, sometimes it, it wouldn't rain for a while and, and they would start to, you know, wonder where did the rain go? Is it, is it somewhere else? Why isn't it here? We need it. The plant needs it. Uh, the sun, sometimes it was too hot. Sometimes it was just right like it is today. Sometimes, you know, there, there's these forces that they would start to realize that were out of their control, but they impacted their life in a deep, deep way. And over time, over the years, they started to name these forces. They started to ascribe personalities to these forces. And they started to get this idea of this, this force, the sun force, or the, the rain, whoever the rain is, is temperamental. And sometimes it would be angry, and there would be these loud cracks of lightning and thunder. And, and they would start to, to ascribe these personalities and these names to them. And if you look back through history, you can, you can read all about this, and some of these are familiar to you guys, and some of them might not be as much, but the, the ancient Mesopotamians, they had a god of lightning that they named, that had this personality. They had the god of sky, the sky, the god of the waters, the Sumerians, they had the gods of fertility, because sometimes when they wanted to have children, it worked, and sometimes it didn't, and so there was some other, there was some unknown force that sometimes it, it happened and worked and made sense, and other times it didn't, and why is that? There's something some greater force that we have no control over, riding scooters on the sidewalk. <laughs> Just kidding. The Sumerians had, they even had a goddess of beer, which is pretty great. Uh, I mean, there, there's the gods and goddess that would ascribe these personalities. The Babylonians had Marduk, the god of thunder. The ancient Greeks, who many of us are more familiar with the Greek gods, they had Artemis, who was the goddess of hunting, but she was also happened to be the goddess of protecting small animals, which feels like kind of you're at odds if you have both of those roles. It's like a conflict of interest maybe, but, um, but you can walk across ages and years and worldviews and you can walk across perspectives and nationalities and religions and, and almost all of them, you can find that the naming of these powers, of these forces, 
And this is what many people's religions or their beliefs were built around. And still it's true today. My brother is a missionary in Nepal. And a lot of the, the people that he interacts with in some of these villages in the Himalayas, they, they honor and worship and pray to these forces because they rely on these forces. And so over time, as they began to recognize how, you know, sometimes it was too hot and it was hot forever and sometimes there wasn't enough rain and sometimes there was too much rain and, and they started to realize this over and over again, they, they, they started to see that it would make sense to keep these forces on their side rather than just asking the tree, like, hey, can you please just do what I need you to do? It was kind of like the, the very first version of asking, like, can I speak to a manager? Uh, and so they would go directly to the forces, they would go skip the tree, skip the lower, kind of the entry-level role, skip the, the animals, and they would go directly to the forces. And they said, what can we do to convince these powerful forces that we can't really control on our own? What can we do to, to sway them? What can we do to convince them to help us? I can't control the fruit tree. I can't control the beasts that I'm hunting. So how do I get in with the force that controls them? How do I get in with the force of the rain, the sun, the, 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 the fertility, you know, the, the force that says sometimes it'll work and sometimes it won't work? How do we get in with that, that power? And thousands and thousands of years ago, before Jesus, before David, before Moses, before Abraham, people started to figure out ways to make offerings to these forces. They said, you know, what would it look like for us to, to bribe them, to get them on our side? How can we sway them? How can we appease them if they're angry? And so they started to figure out, hey, can we, can we carve off some of our crops? Can we carve off, you know, some of the animals that we caught? Can we actually offer that back and say, hey, this is to make you happy, to let you know that we see you, that we recognize that we couldn't have had this successful hunt without you? And so they would figure out how to make these offerings and sacrifices so that they could sway and bribe and move the forces to be on their side. This is where offerings and sacrifices began. This model existed in many, if not most, ancient religions. A lot of us kind of think that this is just a Jewish Christian thing, but it actually existed much outside of that. If you needed to get something, you would make a sacrifice or an offering. If you needed to appease someone, you would make an offering or a sacrifice. If you needed to right a wrong somehow in the world, you would make an offering or a sacrifice. If you needed to know something, if you were trying to figure something out, if you were trying to get answers, you would make an offering or a sacrifice. You're trying to earn favor. If you're attempting to, to trade something for something else. This is this whole idea of how do we control these forces that are so much beyond us. This system, some people call it the temple model, the sacrificial system, it existed in Judaism as well, in the Jewish faith, which if you read the Old Testament, this is the, the, the Jewish Bible. This is what they believed to be true, and they had a system of sacrifices and offerings to, uh, to appease God. And the difference between Jewish faith and many other faiths is that they believed in Yahweh, the, the one true God. And this system existed in that, in that faith, and God used a system, this sacrificial system, this, this offering system that people were familiar with, partly because it gave them a framework to understand who he was, who God was, and a framework for them to be able to interact with God. 
but mostly because it helped the Jewish people understand that they needed God, that they couldn't do it on their own, that they needed something beyond themselves. And so when Jesus walks onto the scene and he turns kind of everything they've known for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years upside down, he shakes it all up. And he does it in a way that he doesn't say that this is wrong. He does it in a, a totally different way that was even more concerning. He said some things that totally changed the system that had been ingrained in them by their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents. And it had gone back generations, this, this system, this way of thinking of I need to appease the forces or in the Jewish faith, I need to appease God. I need to make a sacrifice. I need to make things right. I need to X in order to Y or Z, I guess. I should have started at a different level letter there. He didn't say that their sacrifices were wrong or that that system was pointless. He said something even crazier. He said that he was the perfect fulfillment of that system, which blew their mind because there was no fulfillment of the system. You did it over and over and over again as long as you needed you continued to make sacrifices and to make offerings as long as you needed. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus is talking and he says, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets, which is their, their way of understanding and interacting with God. I haven't come to abolish that. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. He came to fulfill that. The way that you were trying to appease God, the way you were trying to be made right, the way that you were trying to be seen or heard by this force, Yahweh, God, the one true God, the way that you were trying to know what God wanted from you, the way you were trying to earn favor or perform your way into God's good standing is no longer needed. I haven't come to, to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. Jesus is the fulfillment of of the sacrificial system. He's the fulfillment of that entire concept. He lived a perfect life. He was crucified as the once and for all sacrifice for our sins and our brokenness. We sang about this this morning in one of the first songs we sang. He's the lamb that was slain so that we could be unchained, which is funny because we're in a series called Unchained. But he, he was, is the sacrifice that was, that was given that was so perfect and so right that it actually completed the need for sacrifices. The first church was teaching this gospel. They were going around and, and they were teaching and, and meeting in homes all over the place. And there was somebody named Paul who was originally named Saul and he was kind of the, the most Jewish, Jewish person ever. He knew all of the laws. He followed them perfectly and he hated Christians to the point where he was actually going around and making sure that they were being stoned and killed because he was so against what they were teaching. And then something happened in Acts chapter 9. You guys can read that on your own if you want. But essentially, in verse 15, God shows up and he changes Paul's life. And in verse 15 of Acts chapter 9, it says, But the Lord said, Go, for Saul, which was his first name, Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles, which is anybody that's not a Jewish person, Take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings, as well as to the people of Israel, as well as to the Jewish people. So God chose somebody that hated Christians 
to spread this message. He changed his heart. He changed everything he knew. And Paul is incredibly educated and wise, and he knows poetry, and he knows, I mean, he's the smartest. I mean, we've talked a lot about how the disciples were kind of this, like, ragtag, like, really, Jesus, that's who you're going to go with? Like, they were, they were that kind of group. And then Paul was the one that you would expect. He was the one that had so much experience and wisdom and knowledge and he could put together full sentences. And, and he was just much more uh, level-headed in that way. So Paul begins this journey. He's traveling all over. He's preaching this gospel of Christ, this gospel of grace. And he's planting churches everywhere that he goes, these churches and homes. And everywhere that Paul goes, people are enamored with this new truth that Jesus paid the price. They're enamored with this new truth that there's a new life and a new way of living. They don't have to work under this heavy load of offering these sacrifices to keep the one true force on their side, to appease the one true God, to appease Yahweh. This idea that, that it, it's, it's done. You don't need to live that way anymore. Everybody loved that. That was good news. That's the gospel. Everybody was for that. This is true in Galatia as well. And Paul planted a few churches there. The fact that they didn't have to work for the favor of God, that they were invited into this new life, not based on any of their own merit. This was amazing. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My teachings, the way, I, the way I'm inviting you to live, it's not this burdensome, heavy set of rules and systems. It's something totally different. It's done. It's been handled. So the book or the letter as it originally was, was a letter written to the churches in Galatia. And it was written sometime after Paul planted these churches. And the reason that it was written is because word has gotten to Paul that what they believed about the good news, this gift of grace that it's, the, the, the old system is done, what they originally believed and the way that they lived out their beliefs had started to shift. And they started to kind of go back to this old mindset of the sacrifices and the offerings and the rules and the obligations. It becomes really apparent in the first chapter of Galatians, and we're going to read through just the first uh, few verses here. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. You can find it in your Bibles or on your phones, whatever. I think we'll have most of the verses on the screen as well. It says, This letter is from Paul, an apostle. I was not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. All of the brothers and sisters here join me in sending this letter to the churches of Galatia. May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and forever. Amen. And for those of you that have kids, you might know this type of thing. Maybe those of you who don't have kids, maybe you remember this as when you were a kid. There's something for me that even happened yesterday where uh, Mason was, I don't know what he was thinking specifically, but he was in this like bucket. We have a toy bucket on our patio and it's like a tall bucket and it was full of toys and he was like perched on it like a bird somehow just like perfectly balanced on the top and I came out of my house and I said like he was clearly going to fall over and crack his head open in, in my mind as a parent and I said Mason what are you doing get out of the bucket and then as he tried to get out of the bucket he obviously fell over and fell on the ground to which then I felt bad because I think I'm the one that made him fall and so I stopped and I, but there's this initial reaction of are you okay like 
are you are you safe? Do you guys remember that as as kids? Like when your parents like, see something happen and they're like, Yeah, I'm fine. And then the switch happens. What were you thinking? What in the world was the plan here with the sitting on the bucket of the toys? It's that first is everything? And then there's a switch. And in verse six is where the switch is for Paul. Grace and peace. Glory to God. Verse 6, I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way. Get out of that bucket that pretends to be the good news but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone including us or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we have preached to you. I say again, what we have said before, if anyone preaches any other good news than the one that you originally welcomed, let that person be cursed. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Does anybody watch The Bachelor? You know, when they say, I'm not here to make friends. Like, that's kind of what Paul just dropped here. Like, if pleasing people was my goal, I'm trying to please God. This isn't about being popular or being cool. This is about what is true, and this is about what God wants you to know. These new churches in Galatia are mostly non-Jewish people, but there's also groups of Jewish people mixed in. And so what you have is groups of people, and the, the Gauls or the Celtic people were this incredibly like barbaric and violent. I mean, you guys have seen Braveheart, right? I mean, it's just like a picture of this idea of they were all war. They were easily bought out as mercenaries. Uh, you can read all kinds of history about this, the, the, the people, and they, they had all kinds of different gods or forces that they honored and that they worshiped. And so you mix that with this idea that, that Jesus has paid a sacrifice and there's a new way to live and they latched onto it. And then you mix in this other group of people that's this Jewish people that have had this faith for thousands of years of you have to do this and you cannot do that. And if this happens, then that. And make sure that on this day and at this time and on and on and on. And so you have a group of people that have no rules. <laughs> and then you have a group of people that have all the rules and then you're making this new church, this new gathering, this, this conglomeration of these two different sides. And you can imagine how messy it might have been. The Jewish people in this community that, that believed in this free gift from Jewish, this, or from Jesus, this, this gift of salvation, this, this sacrifice that was the final perfect sacrifice, they've started to pull back into this mentality that had been ingrained in them. They started to pull back into this mentality of, you know, but how do I really know that Jesus loves me? Well, I, just to make sure, let me follow some of these old ways. Just to make sure, let me follow some of these old rules. And then, I mean, it's my church, and I want to make sure that he loves the church. And so all of these Gentiles, all of these crazy Gauls and Celts, you guys should probably follow these old rules too. You guys should probably work your way into, and they started listing off all these rules and expectations, and the entire church started saying yes to one rule after another, one law after another, except 
it says, if you keep reading, that none of them had yet gotten circumcised. <laughs> the, the Galatians were like, I mean, there's a point where Jesus loves us enough, right? I mean, I'll roll the dice on it is really what's going to happen. So they start shaping and pulling and moving this, this whole church to kind of believe this other idea that, yes, Jesus died for our sins, and yes, he is the son of God, and also let's make sure that we keep him on our side. Let's make sure that we're doing enough to know that he loves us. Let's make sure that we're doing enough to know that we are still forgiven. Let's do, make sure we're doing enough to still be included. I mean, I get that he forgave us when he died on the cross. I, I, I've been doing some stuff since then that I don't know if he was aware that I was going to make those choices. There's no way he could have seen that mistake that I would have made. I've, I've got a business deal coming up, and I need to make sure that God is still happy with me. I mean, all of these types of thoughts are the ones that they had. None of us have those thoughts ever. There's this idea of I wanna, how can I make sure that God is okay with me? And you know what? Come to think of it, we've been in a drought, and I wonder if God's angry. I wonder if maybe like we haven't had rain because you guys aren't circumcised, <laughs> which is silly. But haven't you been in a situation in your life where you've wondered if God was upset at you, which is why you didn't get something or something didn't happen? If you thought, man, is there something that I haven't like owned up to? And so God is like kind of withholding the rain withholding the son, withholding the job offer, withholding the baby, withholding whatever it is. We all still do this. I mean, sure, God loves me, but maybe he just doesn't like me right now, which is the ultimate relationship excuse. So the Galatians, and this, is, this letter was written 17 years. This isn't like 200 years after Jesus died. This is 17 years after Jesus is crucified. This is, I mean, there's still people walking that were friends that had had lunch with Jesus. They were already questioning the fullness of the truth of the gospel. They were already wrestling with this idea, wondering if they needed to do more in order to have God's favor. 17 years after Jesus went to the cross, because of his love for them, they were already trying to find ways to earn God's love. to keep proving their worth. And I think that if it's the struggle that people face 17 years after Jesus walked on the earth, I have to assume that for us, a couple thousand years after, that's probably still a struggle. And so this is kind of the backdrop of this letter to the Galatians. This is kind of the, the world that they're living in, this world that has recently changed all of their understanding, all of their, their belief systems, all of their ideas about the ways that you interacted with God, with the forces, with power. It was all turned on its head. The problem with us today is that we don't have as many sacrifices as they did in that time. It's a little bit of a different world, but a definition, one of the definitions of sacrifice is the act of giving up something that you want in order to get something else. Giving up something that you want to keep in order to get something else. And I think if we look at sacrifices, kind of take the animals off of the altar, we can probably think of a lot of things in our lives that we give up in order to get something else, and a lot of those are good things. But this is the idea of sacrifice that we have. 
And there's an incredibly important phrase in this first chapter that's really going to shape the entire series that we're in. And that's what we're going to spend the last few minutes that we have today looking at. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a linchpin for the book of Galatians and really the linchpin for us, anybody that considers themselves to follow Jesus. And it's this idea of grace and peace. And that's what Paul put in his first greeting. And it's interesting because in the scriptures, uh, as I was reading some different commentaries, they actually put one of the words in Hebrew and the other one in Greek to say, hey, I get that there's a lot of different backgrounds. Almost to say, hey, I get that there's two different tribes of people here. There's two different ways of thought and you're coming together to something different. Many of us shrug off this idea of grace like, yeah, I get it. I understand grace. And I'm not sure that we fully understand grace. I'm not sure that we ever fully will understand grace to its fullest extent. But if you don't understand grace, then there's a, there's a truth that you cannot have peace. You can't experience peace if you don't understand grace. Grace is described as an unearned gift bestowed freely and never as merit for work performed which kind of goes in the face of everything that people had done for thousands and thousands of years, right? I need to make sure that the sun comes out. I need to make sure that we get enough rain so that the tree grows. I need to make sure that the animals don't run too fast because I'm getting older and I can't chase them. Like I need, to, I need to do something in order to earn fruit, to earn life, to earn whatever it might be, to make sure that these forces are on my side. And grace is unearned bestowed freely and never as merit for work performed. You can't do anything to get it. It's the opposite of sacrifices and offerings. It's the opposite of the way that the Jewish people had interacted with Yahweh, with the Lord, with the one true God. Grace is a gift and we have no part in it. We don't deserve it. It's unearnable. All we can do is accept it and we can try to understand it. Paul actually describes Jesus as the physical manifestation of God's grace. In Titus chapter 2, he says, For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And there's a lot of verses that talk about this idea of that Jesus is grace in human form. And in Galatians 1 verses 6, he says that he's shocked that they're turning away from God. He's shocked that they're turning away from the gospel because what they're doing is they're saying, the grace isn't really enough, so I should probably do these other laws and rules and sacrifice systems. But when you start to add anything in, you're, you're moving away literally from who Jesus is. The idea of grace, the idea of this unearned, unmerited gift. Most of us wouldn't say that they turn away from God. They would say that they're, you know, maybe spinning my wheels. Like, I understand grace, I've accepted grace, and I mean, it doesn't hurt to also try some of these other things. It doesn't hurt to also try and make sure that God's happy with me. It doesn't hurt to try and earn a little bit. Like I know maybe it's not necessary, but it's not a bad thing. But Paul is saying it is a bad thing. Paul is saying as soon as you try and earn God's favor, there is no grace. Like it's not grace at all. It's not that it's, you're accepting less grace. It's that it wipes out the entire idea of that because you've chosen to earn it. You've chosen to try and work for it, to try and be good enough, to try and not say those cuss words, to try and just be really good and fair in your business dealings, to try and just be a good husband or just be a good wife. And all of those things are good, but they're not a replacement for grace. They don't make grace better. 
They don't make grace more full. They don't make God love you more. It is love. He loves you and he has given you full grace. And that's it. Whenever we add anything else to this free gift of grace, it stops becoming grace. Romans 11 verse 6 says, and if by grace, which he's talking about this idea that we are saved by grace, and he says, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, then grace would no longer be grace. That's it. If you try and work for it, try and do it on your own, then it's out the window. Grace is gone. That's why Paul calls it a different gospel in chapter one. He's like, this isn't even the same thing that I taught you guys. I taught you that it's done, that you are loved and accepted, that there's a sacrifice that was made and you are invited into the family of God. And so it's not just like a modified gospel. It's like a totally different thing to say, but you also have to do X, Y, and Z. It's a different gospel completely. We fall into this trap in different ways. Some of us may give money uh, because we think that God will notice or that he will be happier with us if we give money, that he will maybe accept us more. We equate reading our Bibles with making God happy, and obviously we want God to be happy with us. We, we sometimes serve others. We serve the community. We, we go out of our way to do things for people, for charity, whatever it might be, because we think that God will see it and like us more, that he'll love us more, that maybe he'll grease the wheels on some of the stuff that we have coming up. And it's not that you are such a terrible person that you do that. It's that we are all broken And it's hard for us to understand why somebody would just give us such a gift. One author said that grace is an insult to mankind because we live in a culture where you have to work for what you get. And so grace insults everything we know about our jobs, everything we know about our relationships. We have to work on our relationships for them to be healthy. It, It goes against everything inside of us. It's not just you. It's not just me. It's all of us. The more that we grow in our understanding of grace, the more that we will experience peace, which is the second part of Paul's greeting. He says grace and peace. When we turn to our own solutions or our own efforts or our own attempts, we often experience anxiety and stress and hopelessness. Because as soon as you start thinking, maybe if I just do these things, I will get this. God will give me this. And then if it doesn't happen, then you automatically think, I gotta do more of that thing. I have to try harder. I have to pray harder. I have to be nicer. I have which isn't a bad thing. I have to, you know, as soon as it it doesn't the results don't come, then you automatically say, Well, it must because it must be because I haven't done enough, that I'm not good enough, that I haven't pleased him enough. And that's that's not the case at all. And so this idea of anxiety and stress and hopelessness, oftentimes we take that onto ourselves because God hasn't given us those things that we think that we need, those things that we want, and we equate it to the idea that we haven't made the right sacrifices. We haven't appeased the forces yet. But when we rest in God's grace, we experience peace. Peace isn't the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of wholeness. One definition of peace, and the Hebrew concept of peace is this word shalom. Can you guys say that? Shalom. It's a fun word to say. It is. Uh, the, the idea of shalom and one way that that's expre- ex- explained is nothing missing, nothing broken. This idea that everything is as it should be. Peace. Nothing missing, 
nothing broken. There's a few ways that we can experience God's peace. We'll talk about that in just a second. But this idea, and it's critical that we understand, because I would be willing to bet that just like me, that some of you guys feel stressed out, that some of you guys feel anxiety, that some of you guys feel uh, hopelessness, that some of you guys get the sense that even though you were working constantly, nonstop, as hard as you can, that you should probably be working a little bit more in order to get whatever it is you need. And, and that's not just spiritually, that's just in general in our lives. That's our culture. We struggle and strive, and this idea of busyness is almost like a badge of honor. I'm not lazy. I'm working my tail off to provide for my family. And again, good things. But the idea of grace, the more fully that we understand grace, because I think that you understand it at a level. I think I understand it at a level. But the more fully we understand it, the more fully we will experience peace. They're tied together. And that's why we're spending so much time talking about this. There's a few ways that we can experience God's peace. And again, this is tied into this deeply, and I feel like I'm saying this over and over again, but it's just so important. The more that we can understand that you cannot earn God's love, you cannot earn God's acceptance of you. You cannot work your way to him being happier with you. That is not possible. The more fully each day, the more that we understand that, the more we will experience peace. And here's why, here's the ways that it happens. We will experience peace with God. In Romans 5 verse 1, it says, therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. As soon as we are able to accept more fully this idea of grace, this unmerited, unearned gift of acceptance and love, we will experience a different type of peace with God. You don't have to be afraid that maybe he's ticked off at you because of what you did yesterday. You don't have to hide on a Sunday morning because of what you did on a Saturday night. You don't have to, as soon as you understand and as soon as you're able to understand this idea of grace more fully, and again, I don't know if we'll ever fully get it on this, on this earth, but the more you understand that, the more you will be at peace with God. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in anxiety and, and, and worry of the way that God sees you. The second thing is that we'll experience the peace of God, which is different than the peace with God. Uh, there wasn't a better way to write that out that I could think of. Philippians chapter four says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and guard your minds in Christ Jesus, who we already read is grace embodied. So the more that we embrace this idea of grace, the more that we understand, the more that we focus and meditate and try and wrap our heads around this idea that it is a gift that I cannot work for, the more that I will experience peace in life, the peace of God wherever I go, at work, at home, in friend groups, in school, whatever it might be, the more we'll experience this peace. The third one is peace with others. And there's a really special thing here for me, at least this week, that I realized. And I don't know if anybody else will care, but this helped me, so I'll say it out loud. The more I understand that 
on my own, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I can't earn it. I can't figure it out. The more I realize that there is no competition with anybody else because we're all kind of sunk on our own. And this is one thing why a lot of people say that they believe that Christianity is exclusive because Christianity teaches that there's one way, truth, and life, and that's Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the only way. And they say, well, there's other religions, and maybe they haven't heard about Christianity and and these different things. And they say that Christianity is so exclusive because it says it's the only way. But the truth is that I think that Christianity is the most inclusive because none of us have a leg up on the other, regardless of what family you were born into, regardless of what ethnicity you are, regardless of what social class you're a part of, what social caste you're a part of if you live in certain parts of the world. It says that none of us on our own can do it. And so we are all able to accept this gift. We are all able, we are all on level ground. And this idea of experiencing peace with others, the more that we understand God's grace for me and for myself, there's no competition. There's no reason for me to be concerned about other people, the people beside me, because it's, it's this idea of grace that we've all been accepted into. But as soon as I start to think, well, they're not as generous as I am, or I don't have as much money to give as they do, it goes both ways. As soon as we think, man, that person is not nice. Or we think, I just, I don't know if I'll ever like people as much as that person does. <laughs> There's two sides to that coin because we'll, we'll, in some ways we'll position ourselves as, man, maybe one day they'll get to where I'm at. And at the same time, we look at other people and we think, guilt, shame, I will never be what they are. I'll never have what they have. I'll never have that gift. I'll never have. So this idea of grace is so critical and it changes how we interact with others and it gives us peace in our relationships because it doesn't technically matter because God gave you a free gift. It was unmerited. It was unearned. It's a gift of grace and it gives us peace with God, peace of God in our day-to-day life and peace with others. And I want to say, Just as a a sidebar, this doesn't mean you can do whatever the heck you want. And Paul talks about that a lot in some of his letters because I think that people read the letter to the Galatians and they're like, oh, cool. This is even better than I originally thought it was. You will not be judged on your works. The Bible talks about that. When you stand before God, he will not judge you based on how good of a person you are. But God does look at us and he calls us to grow and be more loving and be more gentle. And in chapter 5, we're going to look at the fruit of the Spirit. And there is growth that we can all take part in. But that growth does not equal more grace. It doesn't equal more favor. It doesn't equal more worth or value. Does that make sense? I just felt like I needed to put that in there before you guys like go out of the doors on Twitter and be like, Yeah, let's go rage tonight. Everybody come to my house. Pastor said we can do whatever. I know I'm going really long. I've never gone this long. I apologize. Wrapping it up, there's this, I read this online this week, and I love the way that they pieced this together, and I want us to read it. I'll read it to you guys. You can take a picture of it if you want. You can read these verses on your own, but it says, we should note that God is called, is that slide, do you have that next slide? It's like two paragraphs long. Yep. 
God is called the God of all grace and also the God of peace. The gospel is called the gospel of peace. Christ himself is called our peace, and we know that Christ is the embodiment of grace. Scripture speaks of guiding our feet into the path of peace. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. I don't know if any of you guys are troubled or afraid ever in your lives, but you don't have to let that happen because I've told you these things so that in me, not me, but in Jesus, we can have peace. In grace, we can have peace. This is got to be good news. This has to be good news. This has to be hope. This has to be something to smile about because there is such a, you can't even explain it without saying gift. You can't even explain it without saying that it's, it's just the best thing to know that there is unending, unmerited, unearned grace for you from God. That's how he sees you. And the more that you understand that, the more that you will experience peace. So, it's important that we understand what grace is and that we continue to, to grow and meditate on and embrace this idea of the grace that God has for us. And it's important to understand the ways that we try and appease God. The sacrifices, the, the ways that you try and make sure that the tree in front of your cave produces enough fruit. The animals that you're hunting don't run too fast away from you. Because it might look different, but we still all have this natural tendency to try and make God happy with us, to win God onto our side. And as we look at the, the book of Galatians, as we continue on over the next few weeks, this idea of grace and peace is so critical that we understand this as we continue to read the rest of Galatians. And I think that many of us wish that we had more peace. We wish that we didn't have anxiety or stress and I think for each one of us, the invitation for today, the invitation, the practical piece that we can take is to try and understand a little bit more of what grace is. And hopefully today we've talked about that, but I would encourage you guys, I think we have a slide with that website address. I would encourage you guys to read Galatians with me over the next few weeks. Let's read it together. And I really, really believe that as we read this together, it will help expand our understanding of grace and peace and the way that God wants us to live.